You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Since 1990, Southeast Michigan has remained the most segregated metropolitan area in the country. While these racial dividing lines between the places we choose to live are not unique to Metro Detroit, it is certainly most stark here. Our struggles with housing segregation and attempts at integration are born through a long history marked by riots, rebellions, redlining, and the construction of freeways that quite literally demolished minority neighborhoods and put a physical barrier between the neighborhoods that remain. Today, our region, like the rest of the country, is also becoming more diverse. What could this mean for segregation and integration of the places we live? Has it had any effect? Will it have any effect moving forward, or will the dividing lines drawn out decades ago remain in perpetuity? The Washington Post recently published a report titled, America is More Diverse Than Ever, But Still Segregated. It examines many of these questions on a national level. Our next guest is quoted a number of times in that article. Michael Bader, assistant professor of sociology at American University, studies how cities and neighborhoods have evolved since the height of the civil rights movement. He links long-term patterns of neighborhood racial change to the ways that race and class influence the search for a place to live. Michael Bader, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. So I, I think this is a really interesting uh, sort of contrast uh, that, that's drawn in this article in the Post uh, about the uh, deepening of racial diversity and cultural diversity in this country and at the same time the perpetuation of segregation. Uh, first, let's just talk about how that is playing out and why these uh, historical barriers, which were enforced by law for many, many years, but aren't anymore, <clears throat> what is keeping them alive? Okay, well, thank you. And, and I want to acknowledge uh, Aaron Williams and, and Armand for doing such a great job on that on that story in the mm-hmm, post. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they worked really hard on it. Um, so there's a couple of things that are going on. One is, as you mentioned, the long historical trajectory of racial, explicit racial discrimination in U.S. housing policy. Until 1968, it was legal in the United States to discriminate based on race. Mm-hmm. And so what you ended up with were neighborhoods that had, throughout the Depression, and then into World War II, had received almost no investment. And then when you combined the um, grants and and loans that the federal government gave through the VA and through the Federal Housing Administration to build the suburbs, Uh, black folks were explicitly barred from moving into those neighborhoods. And in fact, the loan uh, appraisal methods were explicitly written such that if black folks moved into the neighborhood, then you could not get a loan. And so you had to have what were called racial covenants to be able to get those loans. That's right. And the most famous example of this is the the wall on Wyoming Avenue in Detroit, where yes. they literally, the, the contractor literally built a wall to say there was a separation between a neighboring black neighborhood and a white neighborhood so he could get the FHA loans. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the, the history, and that extends all the way to 1968. Um, and then throughout the 1970s, you although it was technically illegal, there was still a lot of discrimination going on and a lot of white flight. Um, and so you ended up with 
uh, neighborhoods and entire cities and places like Detroit that were predominantly black and hadn't received any kind of housing investment. And so we're dealing with buildings oftentimes that were built in the 1930s um, or mm-hmm. 1920s, actually, and, and kind of finished in the 1930s during the Depression. So those have long-lasting effects on when we think about things like housing equity, right? You're not going to have as much equity in those homes as, say, the suburban homes where white folks are able to build a nest eggs and their kids to college um, and advance. And so black folks were not able to do that as much. Um, and so that's, that's the legacy. I'm not... And then I can talk a little bit, if you want, about what I think is happening now. Yeah, um, I mean, which what, I think is a little dif- little bit different, actually. Right, right. I mean, so uh, since 1968, we have seen the country become more diverse, not just in terms of black, white, but in terms of uh, lots of other uh, ethnic groups uh, joining joining the country. Uh, what effect, I guess, has that diversity had on these patterns? Of segregation, and if it hasn't had much of an effect, why not? Okay, so that's a, a great question, um, and one that uh, has a couple different strands. So, if, bear with me for just one second. Sure. So, one is policy. Um, in 1965, Congress changed the Immigration Act, uh, or passed the Immigration Naturalization Act, and changed immigration policies to basically set up the regime that we have now. So, when Congress is talking about immigration reform, they're talking about reforming that 1965 Act. Right. That act allowed, um, rather than using racial quotas of Americans already living in the United States, they allowed immigration from anywhere. And so much of that immigration was from Latin America and then later um, Asia. And so we, the um, Latinos for a long time have been the fastest growing um, non-white group in the United States. It's now Asians. And those folks have largely moved to metropolitan areas, um, if not oftentimes not cities, actually. They're moving more and more to, to suburbs directly rather than moving into central cities. Mm-hmm. And what that has meant is that um, on the one hand, we have much, as you mentioned in your intro, much more diverse cities. But many of those places were um, places that, say, one uh, father or a son moved, and then a brother would come and a sister, and then people would kind of move into those neighborhoods. And this was, has always been a pattern. I mean, you think about places like Greektown or Little Italy's, um, where folks would kind of place a foothold and then move out. Um, and so to some degree, that's actually happened for Latinos and Asians mm-hmm. more than blacks. Um, but what's been disheartening is that in many places where blacks, uh, Latin- blacks and Latinos, especially, and in some places, Asians have moved, Basically, what ends up happening is they integrate the neighborhood, and white folks don't flee anymore as much as they used to, so they're not necessarily moving out of those neighborhoods, but new white folks aren't moving in. Mm. And so what ends up happening is um, white folks kind of age in place and eventually pass away from from old age, and you have a long-term pattern towards racial segregation. Um, And that's happening in lots of places in neighborhoods that were once black-white mixed or, or... um, white Latino or white Asian mixed. Um, and so that's been kind of the the disheartening part of integration in the 21st century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Michael Bader, an assistant professor of sociology at American University. He's one of the people quoted in a recent uh, Washington Post article that took a look at how diverse America is becoming, but how segregated America remains. We are talking about 
segregation and its lingering effects both here in Metro Detroit and around the country. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us, do you see your own neighborhood changing in terms of racial or other demographic makeup? If you have moved recently or in recent years, how big a factor was race and ethnic makeup of a neighborhood in your decision to choose a place to live? Have you considered moving to a place with a significantly different racial makeup than the one that you live in now? Why or why not? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, Aaron on Facebook says, I reside in Detroit to be away from the suburban mentality. It's a mindset that's shrouded in racism that presents with a smile. Uh, Aaron, thanks very much for that, uh, for that comment. Uh, Michael, I, I, I want to talk about choice and the, mm-hmm. the, the role that it plays in, uh, in this dynamic. Um, you know, I, I'm an African-American who lives in the city uh, for many of the same reasons that Aaron just talked about there. Uh, this idea uh, of living in a community with a white dynamic uh, mm-hmm. and the things that we see that happen in those communities is one of the things that keeps me in uh, the city. And that's here in Detroit or uh, when I lived in Chicago, when I lived in Baltimore, you always make those same kinds of choices. And it's sort of a tough thing to accept. I mean, it is sort of an acceptance of the legacy of segregation, of legally enforced segregation, but it's also sort of a... um, uh, I mean, it's sort of a, a survivalist mentality, I guess, uh, that that uh, that accompanies that, and and that's what I think makes the kind of integration we're talking about tricky. Now, I happen to live in integrated neighborhoods in in the cities where I choose to live, but uh, the idea of moving to these places that African Americans weren't allowed is something that's really hard for me to get over, and I don't think uh, I'm alone in that. Uh, I don't think you're alone either, um, and it's the unfortunate reality, as you said, a, a kind of survival mentality that the costs of racism and the history of racism in the United States has basically meant that those legacies are still in many ways tearing us apart. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no reason why you should have that kind of survivalist mentality, but unfortunately, given our history, that's what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, one thing I will say is I've done research in Detroit and in Chicago, two places you mentioned where mm-hmm. um, we did ask folks where they might consider moving and we gave them maps of each of the respective cities. And on average, black folks were actually much more open to moving to all white neighborhoods than um, white folks were. I mean, white folks were basically would never move to, to a black neighborhoods that yeah. were more than 80% black. Uh-huh. And so while you and Aaron might be making choices about where to live, on average, black folks are relatively okay. I mean, they, they often express they don't want to be the only black folks in the neighborhood, which mm-hmm. makes complete sense given the history of racism in the United States and ongoing problems with race in the United States. But um, most neighborhoods that are integrated, black folks are more than happy to move to. And as you said, you're, you live in an integrated neighborhood within the mm-hmm. city itself. Mm-hmm. And so that's an important component we really need to think about, but it's also not the case that, say, blacks or Latinos 
um, or Asians are the ones that are self-segregating. It's mostly whites that are doing that. That are making those choices still. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. No surprise. Lots of folks have uh, things they want to say about this conversation. Let's go to Evan in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, guys. Uh-huh. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I'm a white guy, newish to Detroit, and I less of a question, more just wanted to hear your guys' input on this. The idea of decreasing segregation by maybe moving into a minority neighborhood versus uh, gentrifying. Hmm. So that kind of, where's the fine line there? Is there a fine line? How do you have that conversation? Everything above that. Thank uh, you. Uh, Evan, uh, great, very topical uh, question for this conversation, uh, given that gentrification is something we're starting to talk about here in the city of Detroit as whites move back in. And that line between uh, an effort to integrate or help integrate uh, uh, neighborhoods that are segregated and the idea of being a gentrifier. Uh, Michael Bader, how do we how do we reconcile those things? So a couple of things. So it's a great question. And Detroit is, is definitely going through it. D.C., where I uh, work, is already kind of gone through this, done it, yeah. um, you know, might become a, a non-black city, like a non-majority black city for the first time in, in 50 years um, in the next census, probably. The the question is a great one about gentrification, but I, I often think that we focus too much on individual neighborhoods mm-hmm. and basically say, all right, well, let's, let's think about what neighborhoods white folks might move into. And there's been some kind of cue or cultural acceptance of certain neighborhoods, like the, the uh, Woodward District in Detroit mm-hmm. or DuPont Circle or Adams Morgan in D.C. And so almost all of the white demand for integrated neighborhoods goes into those few places. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you end up with lots of white folks moving there and creating displacement of uh, black folks and oftentimes or Latinos um, or other or Asians as well in different cities, depending on where uh, what the groups are. If that white demand for integrated neighborhoods was more spread out, say, through the entire city of Detroit, right, then right. The, the kind of demand would not lead to gentrification in the way that it has in the few neighborhoods that whites all, you know, kind of have become to consider sort of acceptable. pile into. Right. Uh, that's a yeah. really that's a really interesting point. Uh, Evan, again, thanks very much for the call and the question. Let's go to Salima in Detroit. Salima, welcome to Detroit today. Liam, I think you need to turn your radio down. Hello? <laughs> yes. Can you turn your radio yes. down? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Uh, so what you were speaking to previously uh-huh. about, um, you know, uh, what I was saying was that um, blacks have been continually redlined mm-hmm. through mortgage companies and banks with no repercussions, even though we had the Civil Rights Act and the Housing Act. Those things have not improved our situation as long as the majority of whites own the banks, own the mortgage companies, and own the land. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll, we will continually and consistently be redlined. Yeah. Now, as to gentrification, I was uh, recently gentrified out of our building in Midtown. Hmm. And not only are they doing it in Midtown, they're doing it in uh, the neighborhoods right over there on Ewald Circle, there was a low housing there, and now they're building the condos and they're going to say, oh, if you qualify, come on. Right. And our income in our district, we don't qualify for even the low income housing of a condo. That's right. impossible. It's it's too it's too much to to ask, Salima. Uh, I'm going to run out of time, but but thanks very much okay. for the for the call. I want to give you a chance to re- respond to that, Michael Bader. This. 
the, the role that, that redlining plays. We've only got about uh, a half minute left, but, but I want to get to you on that. Yeah, so redlining is still very much a problem, and it looks different now. So, in fact, what happened in the housing crisis was banks were actually going to minority neighborhoods and selling subprime loans. So after years and years and years of not giving any loans, they then decided, oh, now we're going to give loans and give bad ones. And I don't think that anyone from the banks has really paid any serious repercussions for that. Yeah. Okay. Michael Bader, Assistant Professor of Sociology at American University. Thanks very much for joining us for this conversation on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. We will have you back in the future to talk more about this issue. All right, that's going to do it for me today. Uh, I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. We will see you tomorrow.